0: This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. There has never been a single answer. There has never even probably been a wholly satisfactory answer to the question of what it means to be human. But it is in asking that question, whether we look for the answer in philosophy or religion or biology or literature or legal life, that we make the implicit assumption of a shared condition, a collective condition, or what Hannah Arendt has so peerlessly called the human condition, And yet division is the organizing principle of the world, a principle through which we have honed the many vectors of our difference into a system of graded inequalities through which our humanity itself has become a subjective condition. It is a system in which we now deem some humans more disposable than others, a system in which to be human is contingent on subjecting oneself to the law, to juridical categories a system in which we commit ourselves to a multi-generational pursuit of the transhuman, even as millions live and die at the threshold of the unlivable, as subhuman. In what is perhaps one of the most elemental dialogues we will undertake at Mutant, we return to the question of the human itself, a question without which it is impossible to think of democracy, which is, after all, an idea, a vision, of and for A shared humanity. Ashwari, is to be human to be political? Is that what makes us human?
1: In a very uh, classical and straightforward sense, to be human is first and foremost to be, as it has been said in the Greek tradition, a political animal. Uh, What distinguishes man from other forms of our uh, life what distinguishes man from other living species is man's humanity but man's humanity is not something that exists in isolation from other such species from other human beings and in that sense the idea of the human rests fundamentally on this unspoken assumption That to be human is to both be political and be social. If you were to be marooned in the middle of an island
2: with absolutely no one, it would not matter whether you are human or not. But the moment
1: you find yourself on an island with other living forms, including possibly other living forms that are also consciously human, your existence becomes political and social at the same time. There is, of course, a very um, long tradition of making a distinction between those social and political registers themselves about what makes man social on the one hand and what separates that sociality of man or the human, so to speak, from its political anchorage or scaffolding. But before we get there, I think it is important to remember that, that to, to use the concept or the word, or perhaps most fundamentally, to use the notion of the human is to already use a political notion. It is not that human beings are political. It is that the human as such does not exist outside of a political conception of our life. And that life is always a collective life. That life is always a life constituted in and by the presence of others. This is perhaps why, in a paradoxical sense, we become aware of our finitude or our, uh, our mortality, we become aware of our self itself in our encounter with others. Perhaps the greatest uh, um, example of coming to terms with, uh, with our humanity, it has often been said, appears on our horizon during a shipwreck. Because that is where solitude and selfhood make the survivor of a shipwreck aware of what has been profoundly lost rather than gained. So as we begin this conversation, we need to perhaps remember that the self at its most intense recovery of itself, the self at its most conscious awareness of itself appears on its horizon or appears to its own consciousness as fully formed in a moment of profound loss. I would in fact go as far to suggest that what we call and sometimes even glorify as our solitude, the idea that Uh, A human being recovers himself or herself, perhaps rediscovers himself or herself in solitude, is but a function of that loneliness that comes from the fact of something profoundly political, which is the human capacity to abandon other human beings the human capacity to feel that it has been abandoned by other human beings, the human capacity to become aware that it can be, at any given time, be abandoned by other human beings. All of this, in effect, returns us to the fundamental point about the human condition, which is that The human exists only insofar as there's a plurality of human beings. The human does not exist in glorified solitude. The human does not find itself in some lonely hill whose top only one person can see. To be human is to therefore think in terms of a
2: freedom that is never greater than the freedom of others. My freedom, my human freedom, is only as uh, profound and as irrefutable as the freedom of those around me. If what
1: makes us human is an awareness of what freedom is, then that awareness of what freedom is is simply a function of freedom of the freedom of others now when we ask this question is human is being human political or is the human a political idea that is exactly where we must begin with we must begin with the idea of what a political notion is if the human is a political notion what is a political notion and what makes a human in its notionality in its very constitution political. What makes the human political would be first and foremost, the idea that it is conscious of freedom. Okay. And while human freedom is a, a, a timeless philosophical, philosophical problem, our, approach to that problem must begin with a recognition that human freedom, the freedom of any given human being, is never less than or greater than the freedom of those others, that plurality of human beings that surround her or him. Perhaps Edward Said was thinking of this notion of freedom when he said those who refuse to
2: Recognize me will always oppose me. The recognition of my
1: humanity or your humanity is the ground
2: of not just my freedom but yours too. And it is in that sense that freedom is inseparable from our imagination
1: of what a human form is. And the moment we concede and accept that that freedom is never greater or less than the freedom of others that surround this figure of the human, we simply understand and and can recognize the fact that the human is first and foremost a political notion, a political idea. It only exists
2: in any meaningful way in the company of others. The human becomes human at the moment where, as Hannah Arendt says in her
1: immemorable passage in the human condition, in our
2: ability to ask, who are you? And that question cannot be asked in solitude. It can only be asked when there are human beings more than two that is when the question who are you becomes possible so the answer would be yes to think of the human is to think about a political idea
0: if we if we think of this question in a sense in the inverse uh, given i mean the age we now live in is technocratic to say the least right and very little in the practice of politics in in our political lives today seems to have any relation left uh to principle to ideals um you know there is a sense of and i think you already articulated it as such the the idea of the human having abandoned the human itself, having reduced the human to the technocratic, having turned humankind into data sets or economic metrics and principles um, or to borders and land and territory. When we abstract politics from human preoccupations, um, and in a sense when we replace our political language with a technocratic one in which we sort of dehumanize ourselves, what is then left of the political and the human?
1: Yeah, it is important to remember that uh, one of the primary, and I wouldn't say primate, but one of the primary attributes of being human is the ability to fabricate our living world. In, in some senses, this is why um, the shipwreck, where a, a survivor of a shipwreck finds himself stranded and reco- and, and comes to terms with what being human means, that awareness is no less uh, and no more powerful than the human being who, for the first time, fabricates a dwelling for himself and, and, and his family, right? Fabrication is fundamental to the human, which is another way of saying that technique, or as the Greeks would say, techné, or technology, has always been a part of being human. Right? There has never been a time when technology and the human were separate. There has never been a time where moral intelligence could be separated from the materialities of how that intelligence came about. Now, there is, of course, a deep platonic tradition that makes uh, a division between what human beings can achieve with their minds and those who work with their hands. There is a profound condescension in the inserted and constitutive of the very idea of the human against those who work with their hands on the one hand. On the other hand, to be human is to be able to use your hands, right? And we have said this before, and, and I'll insert that comment here. There is a name for this condescension. There is a name under which this division of the world is organized. There is a name for this regime or economy, for this genre and this law, for this entire tradition of legislating human conduct and behavior, under which, on the one hand, to be human is to have hands, and on the other, to condescend and denigrate those who work with their hands. That's the great Celebration on the one hand with certain forms of manual perfection and excellence, say playing a musical instrument, is seen as the triumph of human glory. To wield a weapon, a sword, or a musical instrument are parts of the broader universe of human excellence. But what about those who use their hands to make those instruments, to make those weapons? Right? How are they left out of that story of human glory? There has always been a division between what is properly human and what is inadequately human. What is the best of humanity and what is the remnant of humanity? from which appears the stark truth about the human condition that some human beings, possibly the most hardworking human beings, are also the most disposable human beings. Marxism calls it labor. Those who labor with their hands are not simply considered or, or, or deemed disposable by others alienation from their, own, from their own work, from the products and fruits of their own labor somewhere compels them to believe for themselves that they are disposable, that they don't deserve to be. Right? That is, in effect, what, what a, a moral
2: definition of alienation could be. Right? So this is not in other words a recent problem the problem of uh, our
1: the problem of our ability the problem of our will to dispose of certain swaths of humanity altogether has always been a constitutive part of being human right It is only now that we talk of uh, the effects, for example, as you were hinting in your question, the effects of artificial intelligence on human futures. But already in the 40s and early 50s, Hannah Arendt uh, says in that gruesome passage that there would be a time not in a distant future where a majority of uh, of humanity or a vast chunk of humanity will decide by majority decision and aided by a new technological apparatus, that it would simply be better to destroy and dispose of a certain segment of humanity altogether, right? So, and this does not begin with Hannah Arendt either. We can go back to Gandhi's Hind Suraj in 1909, where he has this very quirky uh, and a characteristically idiosyncratic chapter in his masterwork, "Hin Suraj, where he asks, who gave us this right to kill millions of animals just so that we can live for a few years longer? His critique is medical research. And, and, and of course, we can take such critiques of the human appetite for destruction the human appetite to conquer its own death, its desire to be immortal further back. Those critiques go further back. They're as old as modernity or or humanism itself. The broader point we need to perhaps uh, make and remember is that this anxiety about what will be left of the human is not a new anxiety. But the capacity for destroying humanity is unprecedented. And I think what is now important and what can be perhaps gained from the current moment is that at no given point in human history has this distinction between moral intelligence and artificial intelligence. Become, A, so profound, B, so consequential, and C, so autoimmune that it will destroy humanity itself. Okay? So in, in, in many ways, we are here at a fork where we need to say two things and give them equal weight. One, that technology and
2: technique, techniques of creation and techniques of destruction are not
1: capabilities that humans have mustered or amassed. Those techniques of creation, those appetites for destruction, are constitutive
2: of being human. Right. And to say that is to concede and have the
1: courage, therefore, to look at the catastrophe that we are faced with today. Someone else did not do this. Human beings did it to the planet. Right? Human beings did it by a simple abandonment of not only their moral intelligence, but of other human beings. So that's one thing. Technology has always been constitutive of the human. On the other, at this fork, is a certain recognition that we are at an unprecedented moment in which the distinction between artificial and moral intelligence has intensified to a point of irreversible damage. Possibility, sure, there could be um, a lot of so-called benefits of artificial intelligence. Nobody doubts that. But our point is more limited. Our point is more ontological, so to speak, or, or, or rather it's a critique of that ontology, which, which is that a certain distinction between artificial intelligence and moral intelligence now has the capacity to destroy what, at least until now, we have believed the human is composed of, right? Because... In a very simple sense, like we began, if the human is political, and if the human as such does not exist other than, to go back to Hannah Arendt, other than the fact that it has rights, then technologies of destruction, which are always technologies of creation too, that's a lame excuse. Technologies of destruction have, have always been technologies of creation. They always promise a better, purer, as we were saying in a previous episode, a purer world, right? Every time you destroy a community of people, you promise a purer world. You could, you could try and destroy an entire religious community or a racial subgroup and say this will lead to a better world because it was going to be a purer world, right? So technologies of de- destruction are always technologies of creation, Only now, whatever moral compass, to use a commonplace, whatever moral compass used to determine or has for the last three centuries determined the shape of that intelligence has mutated. Does our use of the notion and concept mutant to explain the human condition? What is the mutant? mutant is a human condition where the boundary between artificial and moral intelligence no longer seems comprehensible
2: or as you would say graspable within a vocabulary that has run its course in the
1: last 3 centuries right even a democratic vocabulary that we have inherited from humanism has run its course. Thus, therefore,
2: also our neo-democratic conditions.
0: In touching on technology, I didn't um, mean to suggest, or I am not suggesting, that there is something singular about this moment and the human predilection for technology. I think uh, what I was, in a sense, going back to is that exactly as you say, this pursuit of the human pursuit to transcend the human through technology, right? And it has taken different forms. uh, And as uh, human ability has grown, it has refined itself. Or or we might, uh, we definitely might hesitate to use the word refinement for where we are today, but, but, whether it is uh, you know gen- genetic perfecting of human beings whether it is trying to transcend the planet itself and find other planets whether it is as you said artificial intelligence as though what the human itself is capable of is not enough for the human right um what it's the pursuit and not the outcome that um that I was coming to and saying, what is it intrinsic to the human through this process to outgrow itself?
1: Oh, uh, there is absolutely no doubt that whatever the human used to be, it is not. And it has completely outgrown itself. And that like many number of species that populate a habitable universe uh, or planet, um, human beings also outgrow themselves. There, there is absolutely no doubt that. But, 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 in what ways do human beings outgrow themselves, and in what ways is that different, if at all different, from um, uh, from some species that scale and you know leave their skin behind, right? And I think part of, part of the, both the complexity and the sophistication with which human beings
2: scale away become different is that it, it comes from the fact that
1: we never, precisely because we are so rooted in the existence and in the possibility of others existing, in the existence of others, our existence is so anchored in the existence of others, is that we are never able to fully scale away. Right? In that sense, technology has uh, made possible of, uh, uh, or given a new life to a very old illusion that you can leave the planet, that you can find another planet where you can start with a purer universe and a purer sky and a cleaner air, and you know, uh, even though that would be completely artificially manufactured, that planet itself, right? Um, so, the idea that human beings outgrow themselves is true not only of human beings but many other species. Human beings are complicated because they cannot ever scale away or scale away fully. They cannot simply leave their skin behind and say, oh, we are now now completely new species. In many ways, artificial intelligence is an expression of that desire in, in one very, very fundamental way. You are right about this desire. That that is as constitutive of being human as any other desire, which is to be something else, to become something else, to not be defined by limits, to be infinite in our capacity to live. For this, um, um, in 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 its search for immortality, human beings are always trying to become something else. In the theological sense, this is what transcendence used to be. God was a figure who could always be something else and transcended the mortal world and the murky social habitus of human beings. Right? Transcendence was always, in that sense, as we have also said before on mutant, was always a, a, a desire to become something larger than Mere mortals, right? So um, we see that form an expression of trying to become something else and change in many different ways. And technology is just one expression of a very old desire. It's a, it's a desire built into all living species. Um, some species do it under
2: threats of survival. Some under uh, the dreams of. Um, advancement. The, the, the point
1: I think I was making is that that line between the desire for survival and dreams of advancement, perhaps even immortality, has blurred, has blurred, not because we care more about who we are or we want to change who we are, but because we have become perfectly capable of abandoning others in order to fashion a theory and a practice of life completely absolved of any political and moral responsibility, right? This is why um, we see so much disparity in the world, because, not because we don't want to eradicate inequality, surely we do. I hope we do, but because that particular time when the desire to eradicate inequality produced a certain kind of moral discomfort in those who made claims
2: about not liking inequality in the world, right? the privileged
1: who want to eradicate inequality in the world used to have a certain discomfort with the inequality in the world. And that was because we lived in a world, in a political world, where hypocrisy used to be seen as a vice. I think the distinction between moral and artificial intelligence intelligence rests on a few key elements Judith Clark calls them ordinary vices they are constitutive of being human right they are even necessary she says about snobbery for being human right this is this is why her radicality goes missing sometimes because she's seen as a as a very liberal straightforward critic of snobbery she is not she concedes as much. In fact, she ties it implicitly and at times explicitly to the idea that being human also means a certain ability to live with extremely ordinary vices. Right? Now think of a world in which one of those ordinary vices, let's pick one here from her brilliant masterclass, hypocrisy. Let's think of a world in which hypocrisy has gone missing. The fear of hypocrisy, therefore, has also gone missing. The fear of being found out of being hypocritical has also gone missing. Right. The shame that accrues from being caught being hypocritical is also gone missing so that you can be a billionaire philanthropist or a perfectly anti-caste liberal on a skyscraper in Mumbai. But you do not see any hypocrisy in cultivating, even displaying that belief in rhetoric
2: and being perfectly capable of even celebrating
1: invisible labor of those who are your unequals one thing that the pandemic did to political and moral philosophy i think and if it has not it should is that invisibility the the effect of not being seen finally became stark it became stark because for the first time we realized that there is a there is a vast chunk of humanity that is unseen that keeps us alive, keeps us going. It was common to celebrate in the United States the fact that Amazon Prime was still working. So you didn't have to go out for your box of cereal, perhaps. It would be on your doorstep. And that is true of much of the urban world worldwide. But that disparity is particularly gruesome in certain parts of the Global South and and certain parts of the Global North.
2: Right now, consider this visible disparity. With the fact that at some
1: point not not long ago. If you were celebrating this disparity. For its efficiency. You would be called hypocritical. You would be, be, you know, your liberalism, let's say, for the lack of a better word, your urbanity, your urbane liberalism would itself come under suspicion. What kind of a liberal are you, right? That on the one hand glorifies people who work with their hands, walk on their feet, climb up the stairs because nobody can touch an elevator in the middle of a pandemic because there are very few guards who will disinfect your elevator. So they climb up several flights of stairs to deliver you
2: your avocado. And they disappear. And at some point, we realized that that
1: liberalism, which saw a certain value in at least not being caught out being hypocritical, has lost that value for hypocrisy altogether, which is to say there is no fear of it no more. Right? Now, that is the world that, that we are sp- trying to disentangle from an earlier world where moral and artificial intelligence were two separate categories, at least in the philosophical tradition. We are also saying, as we were saying early on, that it's only a fork in the road. We have to understand that technology was always part of being human. That technique was always part of not only being human. Technique was what brought inequality into the human and political world. To celebrate technology and technique was one thing. For example, um, Brahmins can celebrate music upper castes can celebrate music, but at the same time denigrate who work with leather in order to produce that set of instruments that produces that kind of music, right? Like we were
2: saying, there is a name. Caste is a name for this condescension of the hand in its most austere, most most unmistakable conceptual
1: form, caste, is condescension. But it is condescension not of the entire body, at least not of the entire body and parts of the body equally. It's a condescension of the unequal that attaches to their body unequally and attaches to different organs of their body unequally. right? Some, some, condes- some regimes of condescension
2: will, will use hands, others' feet, yet others' color of the skin, right? But caste is that framework of condescension in all of these, which is perhaps why varna, the Sanskrit word, is color. I think the the broader point here is that
1: to be human is to have that desire to to scale your skin, to always outgrow, to always leave something behind. But to be human is to always realize is also realize that that scaling is not possible. So then your question would be,
2: what is then left of the human? And I would say a mutant. That is what the human is. A set of capacities
1: and intelligences that is rooted in the desire to be something else. Sometimes that desire to be something else means the desire to be better. To excel, to rise, to soar, to transcend, at other times that desire to be something else can be, can manifest itself in a crippling will to abandon, to dispose of, to amputate, to leave at sea, to drown. Both are constitutive of the human and the human is a story of trying to come to terms with and leave behind the human itself. Like we were saying, the human as
2: such does not exist, except in the fact that it is
1: no greater and no lesser than the rights it has in the world.
2: This is why, to answer your question, with which you started, the human is a political notion.
1: The moment someone says, I'm better than you, it's a political claim. And the moment one makes a political claim, one reveals the inequality of being human. The idea of the human in that sense is also a hubris. We call that hubris humanism. A belief in the human capacity for infinite conquest of the universe.
0: How does this human, not just capacity, but will to mutate, inflect democracy? And where does democracy have the capacity to in some sense hold that human will at bay?
2: Yeah,
1: I think that's the heart of the matter. I think that is the, 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 the political and the moral heart of why the human matters. Right. Now, the idea that the human can exist only in the company of others leads us that fundamental possibility of politics, which Hannah Arendt compresses in the question, who are you? The first time the human becomes aware of itself, the first time that the human becomes a political subject is when it comes into contact, quite physically and literally into contact with other human beings, and is able to articulate a question that would That would forge not only a conversation, because language is central to politics and to being human, but also because it can create a bond and a horizon of possibility in which both can live together. Whenever that possibility has broken down, there has been conflict and there is violence. It is in that sense that both democracy and violence are so fundamentally bound together in in, in a way that um, in a way that shapes the very possibility of what of, of what humanity can become right on the one hand to be human is to be human collectively and share the freedom that comes to us from being human, the awareness of being free with others. All freedom is the freedom of the other. So the moment you leave that realm of sharing of freedom, the moment you consider yourself to have transcended that realm of shared freedom, you have left what we call the possibility of justice, because justice comes only when freedom is equally shared, right? There is no other way in which justice can remain an ideal, let alone an, uh, an institutional vision for the world, right? So democracy is the name we give to this compact, to this act of faith, in which we commit ourselves to sharing our freedom equally, sometimes not for any legal or moral reason, but simply because we know that what keeps us human, let alone
2: makes us human, is this awareness, this consciousness, that I am no more free
1: than you are in my company. This is the great innovation of the American revolutionary tradition that it can imagine freedom in the absence of slavery, in the absence, in the presence of slaves. The other tradition thinks or argues, and, and some of those thinkers we have already uh, touched upon briefly at least. The other tradition of American political thought says you cannot be free in the, in the presence of slaves and in the presence of slavery, right? So there are two ways. See, the, 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 this tradition gives us that same fork in a different language, right? You, one tradition has always maintained that I am freer because I am free to dominate others. This is why a Jewish law reminds us the greatest defenders of negative liberty in America were slave owners of the American South. Because for them, freedom meant the freedom to own other human beings as property. On the other is what we could call the democratic idea of human freedom, which, is, which says you cannot be free in the presence of those whom you enslave. You are no more in, you know, you're no more free than they are. Democracy is a commitment to the second idea of human freedom that our freedom rests on the freedom of others. And the moment we leave it, the moment we leave this pact or this act of faith or this covenant, we have entered. A realm of a tyrannical depoliticization of the world. You know, sometimes, often, uh, and, and so many of us meet um, uh, such individuals uh, in, in often everyday life who say, Oh, I have nothing to do with politics. Oh, I'm not political, right? Um, oh, this is not a political question. Oh, violence is not always political.
2: These are individuals who have left that realm of democracy, period. They could still be voting. (laughs) They could still love rights. They
1: could still claim to love other people's rights, but they could claim both these things. On the one hand, the idea that violence can sometimes uh, be not political and that other people's rights matter, they can claim both these contradictory things only because we have come to live in a world where hypocrisy has lost its value, including the shame attached to hypocrisy. Right. So democracy is many things, but one of the things democracy is, is the, is the human capacity to live with ordinary vices is to not fall into a nihilistic world where nothing matters, where virtues and vices have all lost their distinctive qualities. This is a very counterintuitive way of defining democracy, but I think that is what we need to do in order to understand, firstly, the distinction between artificial and moral intelligence. What makes us really human? What separates a human from other forms of life, including artificial forms of intelligent life? What separates us from a machine that thinks like us, a machine that drives like us, a machine that does surgeries, on other human bodies like us. What is it, really, that separates that living form
2: from us that we have created, right? To me, what separates us is not, or the question of what separates
1: us from artificial life forms is not uh, an invitation to go back to that classical distinction between humans and machines, because that distinction was always fragile, perhaps even non-existent, as we were saying. It is to rethink the place of moral and political judgment in our time, because in the end, that is what really keeps the distinction alive. What separates me from a machine that talks like me, looks like me, deep fakes. All the events around me, like I were present in my own life, while being not there in my humanity. What separates me from a deep fake in the end is not
2: realism. They are as human as I am. What separates, uh, in
1: appearance, what separates artificial life forms from the from the moral forms of life that human beings are capable of, and only human beings and not machines are capable of, is the capacity to judge, and the complete erosion of the shame associated with our ordinary vices, including snobbery and hypocrisy, is an
2: unmistakable sign
1: that Judgment is losing its power. That at a very base level and basic level, human beings are giving up on what makes us human, which is the ability to judge. Insofar as you were saying the human is a political notion, it is a political notion that becomes political and therefore becomes human
2: in the act of judgment. Right? That is the one line I'm not sure our mutations, the
1: mutations in our humanity, will be able to transcend. It can only worsen that mutation. We have said before
2: that that cruelty is a form of violence. Cruelty
1: is a form of violence against violence. Cruelty is a counter-violence that will never not make that initial violence worse. We have talked about Gaza before, and we have said this before, that cruelty is the counter-violence that responds to some imagined or real act of original originary violence, but cruelty is that counter-violence which only worsens that original crime. So Israel can only worsen that original crime of October 7th. It can never respond with a justified force. That is what has happened to the human at large, I think, that older categories do not and might not survive the age that is defined, as you were saying, by a certain kind of appetite for technology that is boundless, voracious, and insatiable, right? We don't even
2: want to drive our cars. We want self-driven cars. Out here in the Bay Area,
1: where we are right now, where, we, where I speak from in San Francisco, they are running tests on self-driven cars. How much of this is really human freedom from driving? And how much of this completely annuls the very foundation of our freedom? Because dystopian technocrats will argue that freedom also means freedom to get anywhere without driving. But those dystopian technocrats will not let public transport grow. They will, in fact, make it increasingly difficult for everyone to travel or take a
2: a mode of public transport while promising freedom, more leisure through self-driven
1: cars. And that is what makes freedom always a nexus of things. A nexus between technique and technology on the one hand and of our humanity and our ability to be human to others on the other, which is what democracy in the end is, isn't it? What separates democracy from tyranny is that only in democracy is certain value still attached to being human towards others, to recognizing others' humanity. To understand that we are human only insofar as we all have shared freedoms and rights
2: because at its maximal depth at its most austere and spartan movement and at the same time at its most virtuous perhaps too
1: at its most tranquil restful place also
2: the human is a shelter for our rights. the human is a bearer
1: of rights, nothing more than that.
2: When refugees drown in the Mediterranean, our failure to respond
1: to that drowning is a failure to be human in that very, very basic elementary sense. We have come to somehow believe that the human is not a bearer of rights, simply a shelter for the law. And those who do not exist under the ambit of the law are simply not human enough. And that too
2: is a failure of our moral and political judgment. I know we've...
0: we've uh... We've spoken at length today about uh, technology and, and the technocratic impulse. And uh, you've touched now on the legal, which is uh, another expression, I think, um, of this human will, in, in a sense, both to, to domination and mutation, and, and, and an instinct that at the same time undermines the humanity of the human. I think the exact, exact example that you're you're offering up, which we have spoken in the episode both on law, um, right, and uh, differently on, on neglect of the figure of the migrant, both a figure of singular crisis and singular courage because they call into question um, the limits of our humanity. So is... is In a sense, the law, which is one of the scaffoldings of democracy right, and of the human, how does the law and how does reducing the law, is it always a reduction uh, when the human becomes a juridical category? Uh, Is there a way to think of the human and the law which does not fundamentally reduce our humanity?
1: Oh, absolutely, which is why I think we began, of of the two things that, um, to use your word, that scaffold the idea of the human, the notion that we are human, we began with the political notion, which was always a notion that recognizes the humanity of others. And that recognition, while it requires the law, while it requires legislation, while it requires legitimacy, also
2: surpasses the law. The human is not a product of the law. The human is the scaffolding
1: around which law creates the modern subject. There is is always a debate to be had about what came first, whether, whether legality and law came first, and human beings became aware of their, to use Hannah Arendt again, became aware of their right to have rights because law came into the world. Or, on the contrary, it was human beings who decided they needed certain laws or what we now colloquially call the rule of law, right? Does the birth of the social contract tradition. Right? So, there, are, there have always been, as we have said, two ways to approach the human. Firstly, as a political one, and that is where we began, because while the second notion of the human is based upon law, the human is more than our jurisprudence. This is why justice is important to remember and connect to the idea of human freedom because law is only a scaffolding. I I, I was saying that uh, that the human is actually a shelter for the law, right? At its maximal depth, at its most virtuous even, the human is a shelter for the law.
2: So we become human because we bear those legal rights we lose our humanity
1: when we decide that only that legal rightfulness
2: is what makes us human. Right? So, to think about human
1: today is to understand that it is a political idea, not a purely legal one. Right? The tragedy is that we put the latter first. And this is what Arendt would place at the origins of totalitarianism. The origins of totalitarianism rests on the idea that, in the end, a human is simply
2: human only insofar as it has; it is a subject of the law. When, in fact, the human is the fabricator and the creator of a political world. So of the two fundamental constituents of being human, we must recognize that while
1: the human is a shelter for the law, those who fall outside the ambit of the law do not cease to be human. That we must bring more gravity, more political weight, to what being human really means. And that is an act of judgment. That judgment is what will perhaps separate us from our deepfakes.